Welcome to episode 34 of the Lady Science Podcast. Uh, this podcast is the monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's Managing Editor. And I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. Uh, Layla isn't able to join us this time around, uh, but we have brought on a couple of fabulous guest hosts to help us talk about this episode's topic, um, which is women in the National Park Service. Uh, Emily McCartan works for a conservation nonprofit in Washington State on the traditional lands of the Nisqually and Squaxin Island people. And Lexi Briggs is a communications professional in Washington, D.C., uh, a little more relevant to uh, our what is bringing us all together today, though, is that uh, she also happens to be one of the biggest Park Service nerds that I've ever met. Uh, <laughs> Emily and Lexi are also old friends of mine, um, and I'm very excited to have them joining us today. So welcome, guys. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Yeah, you couldn't see it, but I was doing like the rock and roll hand symbol when you <laughs> biggest Park Service nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when, when I mentioned this idea, uh, Lexi sent an email in which she listed her various qualifications, which included promising to watch the whole Ken Burns documentary again. Uh, yeah, again, I, I have seen. Um, it's yeah. When when t when life just gets really stressful, sometimes all you want to see is like scrolling pictures of Yosemite National Park and the Grand Canyon. It's and so soothing. It's so I watch great. it when I'm having yeah. a panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> it really works. It does. Uh, so, um, speaking this of summer, panic like, attacks. Whole, yes. <laughs> speaking of panic attacks, um, 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, it's obviously a super weird, awful time for people around the globe. Um, and I think one thing I found myself wanting to do on a regular basis was just disappear into the woods for a while uh, and go hiking or camping or just be outside somewhere. I think one of the things that is terrifying me uh, as we descend into fall is the idea that being outside will be less pleasant. Uh, but I did kind of get the impression that I wasn't the only one who really just kind of wanted to run for the hills, literally. Uh, and... Is this, I'm pretty sure this wasn't just me, but uh, this wasn't just me, right? No, it was not just you. <laughs> Absolutely not. Nope. Yeah. I, the, I, oh, go ahead, Emily. I just, I was going to say, so I work for a conservation organization that has partners with natural resource and parks lands sort of throughout the Western Washington area. And they were uh, like big shout out to the managers of national and state and local parks because they had such a enormous job this summer of balancing incredibly high numbers of use with having to deal with like reduced staff and trying to keep people distant. I've seen more creative ways of describing six feet apart in wildlife terms, like 140 <laughs> toadlets or one bald eagle with its wings spread. Um, so yes, there were so, so, so many people were outside this summer where I am. Yeah. And this is, uh, this is, the case for lots of places. Um, this summer saw the most significant increase in Google searches for camping uh, in nearly a decade. And the campground search app, The Dirt, had a 400% increase in traffic uh, compared to this time last year. So a lot of people, you know, correctly are seeing camping as a safe alternative to other kinds of vacationing. And hiking is a good way to get exercise without going to the gym. 
And, um, you know, I think we're all just going a little bit stir crazy (laughs) and being outside sounds really nice. I definitely have been tromping around the desert a lot more than I uh, usually would. I haven't had a chance to go camping yet, though. Yeah, I take a, a nightly quarantine walk at uh, at least once a night, and there there are a couple of like parks near my house, and a couple of different places that I've gone and just you know wandered for an hour at a time, um, and that is probably the most helpful thing that I've done for my mental health. So, all of this got us thinking about the history of running off into the woods, so to speak, um, and an American institution that has made camping and hiking a big part of their life, National Park Service. And particularly, we wanted to explore how women experience the parks, both as explorers and visitors, and as employees. So, let's get right to it. So, before we talk about the Park Service itself... Uh, we should look at the history of white Americans going west to explore the untamed wilderness. I know this isn't a visual medium, but I am doing big, bold air quotes with that because that's obviously a a very um, constructed concept by white Americans. Isaac Cantor notes in the article, Ethnic Cleansing and America's Creation of National Parks, that early 19th century thinkers who were writing about the North American wilderness, including people like George Catlin and Henry David Thoreau, wrote about indigenous people in what they considered positive terms, but we're still incredibly racist about it with ideas of noble savages and um, treating indigenous people as sort of part of the natural world to be preserved. Thoreau, for example, once wrote that the preservation of natural lands in North America should include the bear and panther and even some of the hunter race. Oh. I <laughs> promise not to get into a rant about Thoreau. <laughs> we just have like a, like, like a back of the paperback novel summary of like if you were to give a blurb about Thoreau uh I have a lot of feelings about Thoreau I had to read Walden in uh 11th grade and it was a whole thing I the the sort of idea that Thoreau and I think for me 19th century white dude naturalists encapsulate was this huge sort of appreciation of the natural world but a, a a real lack of understanding about the their own personal kind of relationship to abundance and stewardship and the fact that there might be a collective responsibility besides like this being a place that they could just go out and enjoy at will um, and not have to work very hard ever yeah and also (laughs) somebody else was doing his laundry big time yes definitely the thing that popped into my head in reading that um that quote uh is the twilight zone episode uh i think it's called people are the same everywhere um it's the one where the guy goes into space and they meet aliens and then he ends up in a a zoo as a human um and and they're like oh we've given you this beautiful like apartment but actually this is a zoo now uh, and and it feels very much like that. Like let us let us study the humans in their in their natural habitat. Yeah, I hadn't known really about that very sort of pre pre parks pre conservation pre formal conservation that there was this idea that that there should be sort of a giant nature preserve in the middle of the continent for both indigenous people and indigenous wildlife. That, that's very interesting. I, I want to just point out that wilderness is a technical designation now for the National Park Service, and it implies lands that are maintained 
sort of to be not developed with very limited infrastructure. Usually you can only access it on foot as sort of a backcountry experience. But that, that idea of wilderness and especially unpeopled wilderness for from Thoreau on forward just completely consciously is designed to obscure the indigenous history of people who lived and traveled and used and actively managed those landscapes to say that they were in sort of a pristine natural mm -hmm. state and they should be preserved that way is something that the National Park Service and other management agencies are really trying to work to unpack now, but it's very much at the root of their mission. Um, there's a yeah. really good book that I read uh, when I was working on my dissertation by Mark David Spence called Dispossessing the Wilderness, uh, Indian Removal mm -hmm. and the Making of the National Parks that really gets into the, this like concept of wilderness and how it gets deployed in this like early pre-conservation period. It's really good and it's really readable for an academic book and I'll put it in the show notes for sure. Um, and then also to your point, Becca, about that Twilight Zone episode, like Wild West shows actually had Native Americans as exhibits yep. in a lot of them. Um, hey, natural history museums actually had Native yeah, Americans as exhibits. Also that. Um, yeah. So by the time the parks were founded, conservationists weren't thinking about indigenous people at all, though, um, except as a nuisance or as a danger to be eliminated. This was in part thanks to good old manifest destiny, the popular idea that the United States should claim the entire North American continent from coast to coast. And also thanks to people like John Muir, who wanted to promote the, uh, this idea that the American West was an untamed wilderness, completely free from humans. And in the second half of the 19th century, white Americans flocked West, some of them seeking land, some of them seeking the spiritual experiences with nature that Muir talked about. And none of them were thinking much about the people who had lived in those supposedly unpeopled places for thousands of years. And white women also went west to explore uh, America's quote-unquote untamed wilderness, um, though their experiences do tend to be much less well-known than those of men like John Muir. I think they definitely have this idea that the only people exploring Yellowstone or the Yosemite Valley at this time um, were these rugged, fearless mountain men, um, but it actually wasn't that uncommon for women to go on expeditions either. In 1857, Harriet Kirkland and Anna Park, who were teachers from San Francisco, became two of the first white women to travel to Yosemite. Uh, to put this in perspective, the first tourist expedition to the valley had happened in 1855, so just a couple years earlier. And I just think I think that's interesting because it just gives the sense that like women, white women, were out here doing this at about the same time that that men were. And in her book, National Parks and the Women's Voice, Polly Welts Kaufman wrote about the experiences of these two women and the many, way, um, the many others who came after them in the decades that followed. In the second half of the 19th century, it actually became very popular for a certain kind of progressive middle-class white woman to go hiking. Hmm. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. By 1870, there was even a a particular kind of blue flannel women's suit that was dubbed the Yosemite suit uh, because so many women wore them when traveling to Yosemite and outfitters in San Francisco would sell them under that name. Where can I get one? I know I was going <laughs> earlier and I just found like a bunch of like Land's End flannels for men that were called Yosemite and I was like this is not what I want. <laughs> yeah yeah this this fun that delights me. <laughs> 
So women also flocked to join mountaineering clubs. Many of these clubs, including the Appalachian Mountain Club, the Sierra Club, the Mazamas Club, and the Colorado Mountain Club, actively recruited women. And around the turn of the 20th century, about half of the membership in each of those clubs was women. Yeah, that's remarkable. There was a, a mountain climbing expedition that summited Mount Rainier during an exposition in the 1890s in Seattle. And uh, this group of suffragists took like suffrage banners up Mount Rainier. There's a big crowd of them. And they later published the packing list that they'd suggested for these women, which was phenomenal. Like the number of underclothes you should bring and um, <laughs> like you wear your skirt and then like definitely make sure that you have breeches so that you can get rid of your skirt when it becomes inconvenient. You're supposed to bring a gross of safety pins, which that's my, sure. that was my favorite tidbit. <laughs> like that's so many safety pins. Were the men just not bringing any safety pins? And so no, you had to bring extra. <laughs> As places like Yosemite and Yellowstone became more and more popular, women were also working at lodges and outfitters that were catering to hikers. And so many of them employed women to serve as guides and just did sort of service capacities, something that um, several of my dad's sisters did in the 1960s and 70s at Mount Rainier. Unfortunately, none of that meant that women were particularly welcome as employees in the early days of the National Park Service. That has to do in part with the origin of the parks. Have you guys ever noticed that there's something a little military-esque about the park ranger aesthetic? There's, yep. That's cool yep. hats. Yep. <laughs> that's, I, a, that's a military uniform and it's <laughs> weird. I hadn't. I hadn't at all. And then I, in preparing for this episode, uh, Becca had mentioned this and I was like, oh my gosh, the, the scales have fallen from my eyes. Like, and, and I was sort of thinking like, well, I always thought of them as more like scouting uniforms. And then I was like, wait a second. I know that the scouts were developed as young men's military outfits. Like and particularly when you look at military uniforms from like World War One, when the National Park Service yeah. was established in 1916, all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I can see the, I can see the resemblance. So in 1916, when the Park Service was created, there were already a lot of federal and state managed parks, including Yosemite and Yellowstone. And since there was no designated agency to look after them, they were often maintained by the military. At the turn of the 20th century, Yosemite was maintained by the all black cavalry unit known as the Buffalo Soldiers. In an interview with National Geographic earlier this year, a black park ranger at Yosemite observed that uh, in those early days, there were probably more African-Americans working at the park in an official capacity than there are today. After the National Park Service was created, many of those same soldiers became the first rangers. Uh, at first, the rangers' jobs were just about patrolling park land and doing things like arresting poachers, which is good, and chasing off indigenous people, which is hmm. bad. Boom. Both, both things that the military Boom. was also doing a lot of in the American West. <laughs> Yes, yes, also doing. Yes. But pretty soon the National Park became pretty interested in the idea of hiring rangers who could educate and entertain visitors. Stephen T. Mather, the first director of the NPS, and Horace Albright, who came after him, both believed that in order to get buy-in from the American public for the parks, the parks had to offer a unique experience for the people who visited. And they both focused on hiring educators, naturalists, and tourism professionals. It's interesting to me to think about this as like, a tourist experience, right? That somebody looked at this and said, just having people who take care of the place is not enough. We need to have an educational and tourist experience. And also it just, it kind of being, I think it's interesting that it's sort of a political decision. 
this is a time I especially people are like, I want to start a farm somewhere with cheap land. And there and then a bunch of people are saying, no, we're preserving all of these areas. And uh, yeah, they have to build in kind of this value to citizens that we still hold up as part of why. I mean, we I feel like we still use it today as like the you have to protect the National Park Service, not just because all these things are important without humans, but because they make us better humans. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's really kind of built in. And it's a savvy uh, political move, too, for the Park Service that even today, yeah. the Park Service is one of the most popular branches of the federal government. And that gives them a huge amount of credibility yeah. and uh, staying power in terms of you know resilience from budget cuts and things like that. As you can imagine, uh, the cavalrymen, though, who were already there, uh, absolutely hated the new guys <laughs> and uh, pretty quickly made it clear that they thought they were a bunch of effeminate losers. Uh, according to Kaufman, the older class of military-trained rangers would call the new naturalist rangers things like, quote, pansy pickers and, quote, butterfly chasers. Uh, so that just sounds really great, doesn't it? <laughs> Super fun. So fun. Yay! Toxic masculinity. And honestly, though, the uh, naturalists weren't that much better. Um, Many of them were also very concerned about preserving the masculinity of their work, and I imagine even more so because there were there was this long-standing military tradition. Uh, and so, one early as one early park ranger put it, they were determined to make sure that the public saw rangers as quote the embodiment of Kit Carson, Daniel Boone, the Texas Rangers, and General Pershing. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This guy's though, this so, I mean, I feel like all of you will, will know exactly what I mean, but uh, certainly Emily and Lexi, but as someone who went to a small liberal arts college in the Pacific Northwest, the idea of a dude who really loves nature and wants to tell you how masculine it is that he really loves nature uh, is a thing that still exists. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's never happened to me. <laughs> no, no. Ask me about men with kayaks at some point. <laughs> I was just going to say, ask me about men with pictures of them bouldering in their Tinder profile. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. It's, it's like there's the whole thing about men with giant fish I was and putting say, them on their Tinder profiles. <laughs> it's the Southwestern fish guy. Oh, God. They're everywhere. <laughs> We can also, like, there's something really interesting about this sort of, like, game and masculine kind of relationship and goes back to this sort of idea of, like, managing and dominating the wilderness. My, yes. one of my favorite jokes is that the, like, America's default solution to a natural resource problem is, like, okay, we have a problem. Can we fix it by putting trout in it? <laughs> like, if we stock trout in this, will that fix it? Like, at, at many of the Western parks in the mountains, they were stocking trout in lakes that did not have trout in them historically uh, as bug control to make it more tourist friendly. And also because it provided this outlet then for like dudes to go out and like catch really big trout and hold them up at arm's length and look like dudes. <laughs> it, like the, it's a very, it, like they just, people love trout. They just love them. So despite all this masculine chest thumping from the Ranger Corps, um, a number of national parks did actually hire women early on. As was the case in industries across the country, the number of women working for the parks went up during World War I when, when many men were serving in the military. One of the first women was Claire Marie Hodges, a grade school teacher who worked at Yosemite during the summer of 1918. 
Hodges was born in Santa Cruz, California in 1890, and she first visited Yosemite when she was 14. And as a ranger, she wore the same uniform that the men did, including the Stetson hat that we still associate with park rangers today, and she performed the same duties as her male counterparts. I'm fascinated by the number of teachers who are showing up in this yes. story, because that's an association that yeah. is still really, there's lots of people who are both teachers and rangers or start in one profession and go to the other. So in the 19-teens and 20s, a number of other women were hired often as guides and interpreters. Many of them were accomplished scientists in their own right, including uh, people like geologist Isabel Bassett, who served at Yellowstone, Pauline Meet Patra, who served at the Grand Canyon and published a book on the flowers of the Southwest Mesa, and Enid Michael, a naturalist who served at Yosemite for almost 20 years. Wives of male park rangers also played a significant but almost entirely invisible role in the maintenance of the early park service. As Polly Welts Kaufman has put it, even though wives performed virtually every function in a national park demonstrating a range of talents, they were still considered surrogates without authority working under the direction of their husbands. Coverture is fun, guys. Yeah. <laughs> This just reminds me, this is like so our wheelhouse, I don't even know how much I have to say, but it reminds me so much of, uh, we talked about, we've talked about on the podcast before, about wives and other uh, women helpers, relatives of famous male scientists. Uh, so just a good reminder that as always, across history and across fields, um, there have been so many women who participated in their husband's profession without pay and without recognition, and the Park Service is certainly no exception. If anything, I'd say it was probably even more significant in this case, because you got to remember that these are people who are living in the middle of nowhere sometimes. Right. So it's it's not like you can go and do another thing. <laughs> There's a national monument outside of Flagstaff, Arizona called Wapaki National Monument, and it's um, a two-story freestanding ruin of a Native American community from many centuries ago. And it's significant because it's not a cliff, a cliff dwelling. It's like, it's sort of a, a looks kind of like a neighborhood um, a little bit. And the story of the first uh, park ranger to go out there was just like this couple got in like a Model T Ford maybe even a Model A, and just like sort of bumped their way out from Flagstaff for a couple of hours, basically, and then lived in the ruin. Yeah, and their job was just to like greet the people who managed to get out there, I guess. Like, I, like this is the beginning of vehicles, and there were not like a lot of roads leading that direction. And like, <laughs> like, like it just was sort of wild to me to think about like what, how would that even work and then also like you're living a solitary existence homesteading in something that has traditionally been a homestead but kind of like forever you know just just alone and and what that what the wifely duties in that case entailed right like she was doing all yeah. the cooking <laughs> over yeah. an open flame grill basically you know like in 1960 the nps finally issued a statement saying that they encouraged the appointment of women, but they included one enormous caveat. They said, quote, women cannot be employed in certain jobs, such as park ranger or seasonal park ranger, in which the employee is subject to be called to fight fires, take part in rescue operations, or do other strenuous or hazardous work, end quote. But don't worry, ladies. The Park Service still has a place for you. The statement went on to say, 
quote, participation by women employees in lecture programs, guided tours, museum and library work, and in research programs would be entirely appropriate and very helpful to many parks. Increased attention may also be given to children's programs in some parks and to extension work to schools for which women interpretive employees may be even more effective than men. Oh boy. Oh, it's, it's fun when they say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> yeah. I will say do. I looked at the, the pictures of women's National Park Service uniforms that is going to be linked in the show notes, I think. And oh my God, in the yes. 60s, it would be hard to fight fires in those pencil skirts. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up uh, because those uniforms are amazing. Um, the like, I think the, the like twiggy style shift dress is my favorite in terms of terribleness. Mm -hmm. The seventies one. Yeah. 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 The seventies It's a one. little Star Trek. I'm not going to lie. It, it, that's what it is. <laughs> that's what it is. It's Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the least practical option for yeah. like going around and hiking and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Any sort of a bush. You know, that's <laughs> that sort of outfit is the natural enemy of any sort of bush. Right. I feel. And everyone's yes. wearing pumps. <laughs> also You're hiking that. pumps. <laughs> yeah, I Why? mean, I, I guess it would be hard to mount a rescue operation if you were in pumps. That is true. It's true. Where uh, is the gross of safety yeah. pins? <laughs> <laughs> it really makes you respect those those Yosemite suits, man. It, I mean, I will say that when you think about the way that like both the male Park Service Ranger Corps is sort of defining this kind of masculine identity and then you have women being involved and are deliberately trying to sort of feminize their participation that like, sure, you could lead a children's interpretive program in pumps in a shift dress. There, right. You know, there's a, a synergy between the way they're dressed and the roles that they're being told to take on. And I think it's interesting that as the Park Service it's, there's sort of a, a, a kind of back and forth little dialectic going on in my mind about the Park Service increasingly taking on these interpretive outreach and education roles, which are historically more that space in itself is more dominated by women as at the same time as women are being admitted or encouraged into the Park Service, but in this specifically kind of one one track. Yeah, I feel like there were probably a lot of people like in Washington, D.C. or in boardrooms and by people, I mean men who were patting themselves <laughs> on their back for being so inclusive and like finding ways for the girls to to be able to work at the Park Service. And, you know, just really, you know, they, that they had developed this women's work, that they decided that it was important and that right at the same time they were able to hire all these women. Yeah, I, it calls back somewhat um, to the the comment you made earlier, Emily, about uh, the interconnection between teachers and and people mm. in the park service, and and that's not to say that like teachers are all. It's it's just it's they're both roles in which kind of women are maybe allowed to do science particularly, uh, but do it in a way that is coded as feminine. Um, so you can, you know, be a scientist if you're primarily teaching science, maybe. And, um, and you can be a park ranger if, if mostly what you're doing is, is guiding, uh, children to appreciate the outdoors. It really, it just, again, this fits into, uh, all of these themes that we've, uh, talked about 
before on the podcast. Uh, another one that jumps into my mind is our discussion earlier this year about uh, women in science museums and the way that uh, gender plays out in uh, the the construction of roles at, at science museums and how you get a lot of educators who are also, and this is also true in the park service, uh, more likely to be uh, part-time and temporary mm-hmm. and how that can then play into to the gendered nature of the work. I think the word uh, appropriate is doing a lot of work <laughs> in this <laughs> yes. statement. Um, it just reminds me of like the botany for ladies kind of like what would be a suitable activity for ladies to do that isn't too strenuous and that um, draws on their natural proclivities and strengths and <laughs> for childcare yeah. and uh, explaining things to young people, things like that. I also, yeah. it's such an interesting, and again, as someone who works in an environmental education field, it's such a patronizing way of describing work that is so central and so vital to not just yeah. the park mission, but to, you know, as we were talking about earlier, the kind of public relations capacity that the park service has is so built on doing kids ranger programs or making these kind of experiences accessible and interpreted to all kinds of people. And especially now as parks are working on um, inclusivity and equity and diversity issues that the, this, the, the interpretive mission is so, so, so core to the preservation to the furthering of the research to public support for all of those things and that it's still packaged in this way that's like well because it's women's work it's kind of like lesser and like if appropriate that it is really vital there is really creative work being done by people of all genders in those fields and the the language around it is still kind of so like constrained in such a weird patronizing way still not as important as trout basically. And trout are important. Do not get me wrong. I'm very pro trout in the right setting. But it's true. It feels like, like the, the difference between like education and public outreach, naturalism, studies of botany, studies and interpretation are vital to the park's mission. And saying that it's appropriate that women are doing this because here are the things that are vital to the park's mission. Like those two statements are just so different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when it's when it's defined as women's work, it becomes less important. It feels like, um, and it becomes an afterthought, and it becomes you know secondary to the real work of fighting wildfires and rescuing people and being extremely American manliness, um, <laughs> Walt Whitman style in the wilderness. And like Emily with the trout, I am very pro Walt Whitman in the wilderness, but. <laughs> I just yeah. want to bring up one thing that lives in my head rent-free, and that is the shredded Smokey the Bear. Why is he so <laughs> Oh, <ripped>? no. <laughs> oh, God. I just, as you were talking, I couldn't, like, the image was swimming into my mind, and I couldn't get it to go away, and I just have to, like, exercise that demon. Why is Smokey so ripped now? I don't like it. That's not okay. okay. No. Do we do we want a a slightly deep dive, a a medium deep dive into Smokey the Bear? Because like this was one of my hyperfixations um a couple years back. Please do look. We're at thirty six minutes. We have time for Smokey. Okay. (laughs) I always have time for Smokey. Smokey the Bear began life as a real bear. Oh, I know. 
this was a real bear that lived on a national park, I believe. And um, then there was a song that was written about him. Mm-hmm. There's so Spooky is a he's a a DNR. Oh, please he's, explain what that he's, means. He's please. a he's a Department of Interior Forest Service property, I think. And there were a ton of like mascots that were kind of adopted in the mid 20th century to do various natural things. I think yes, I think Becca was probably the one who introduced me to Johnny Horizon, who yes, was another public Johnny lands Horizon. figure with a folk song, um, yes. who became a big like thing in my office for a couple of weeks. We've done events. I've done events with Smokey present in the mascot suit. There's like a 70 page document of official guidance on um, how Smokey is presented. Um, again, the fact that he's like shirtless and has pants and a hat is yes, there's a huge amount to unpack there. He does have to have an interpreter with him at all times. Smokey does not talk. So the interpreter kind of has to like anger translate for him, if you will. <laughs> the rules about it, he has to have like a, a shovel that is, I think the shovel has to be pointed and it can't be rounded or it has to be round and it can't be pointed, everything else. I have a lot of feeling. Smokey is a great, like a really, again, a really great like PR success story and a really like recognizable symbol, which is awesome. There's also something, and I've had a lot of mixed feelings this year of seeing Smokey kind of brought out during the terrible, terrible fire season on the West Coast yeah. to say only you can prevent forest fires when so many of these fires were, I mean, like definitely like don't, don't reveal your baby's genitalia with a pyrotechnic display if you can possibly avoid it which seems like just by a case <laughs> if you have to do that but so many of these fires are not actually caused by individual human recklessness they're caused by infrastructure failures or by lightning strikes and by generations of management that has created these conditions in addition to climate change um, and so this sort of messaging that like preventing a forest fire is something that only you can do like yes you need to be careful about fire in the wilderness but Smokey's really starting to feel like he's up against a lot. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, it's very true that not only you can prevent forest fires, because a lot of the forest fires specifically in Oregon this year were started by lightning strikes. And lightning does not listen to Smokey the Bear. I'm sorry. Like, Smokey is a very powerful, very ripped bear man <laughs> with a hat <laughs> and a shovel. But he does not control the weather. And that the forest fire issue has been sort of reduced to this mascot level public awareness campaign is both great because I do feel like Smokey is watching me every time I put out a campfire. And he is. He's always watching <laughs> Smokey's always watching you. Um, anytime you deal with fire. But also like it does displace as we've seen with so many other you know, public awareness campaigns about recycling and about personal responsibility yeah. and about straws and things like that, that it does displace the responsibility from mega corporations and systems of management and governmental entities to the individual. And that that may have a limit to helpfulness. Maybe the CEOs of tomorrow will be watched by Smokey today, which would be great. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I would really like to get some, some Smokey up in some boardrooms. <laughs> Use that, use that big, powerful bear muscle for some good. <laughs> this is now a Smokey the Bear fan fiction podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Layla. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> you you invited us here. <laughs> also, can I just say, maybe if they'd had Smokey in the 1850s, Henry David Thoreau would not have felt the need to burn down 300 acres of forest land outside of Concord because he couldn't be bothered to douse his fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's this true. is a real thing that happened. Good lord! <laughs> I said that Smokey the Bear was originally a bear, but I feel like Smokey the Bear was originally 
the judgment that we all feel at David Henry Thoreau. <laughs> Just manifested into creature Manifested form. into a, a buff bear man, yes. Yes. Okay. Also, wait. <laughs> um, have you guys ever thought of the phrase U.S. government sanctioned furry? Because I now have. No! <laughs> all right, that's it. We're done. I'm, I'm ending the call. I'm ending the podcast. I'm ending the magazine. Lexi Briggs. <laughs> That's it. What have you done? Thanks for joining us. We had a good run. I'm sorry. That's all. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so to loop us back to, you know, misogyny and, mm. and actual humans and particularly ladies who work in the park service and not bears who work for the Department of the Interior... Another fun fact that goes along with uh, that story about all the jobs that women should and shouldn't do from 1960, um, women park rangers weren't uniformly called park rangers until 1971. Uh, so, so like, sometimes they were, um, and sometimes they weren't, like, and it was something that was instituted mid-century, like, I want to say maybe even post-World War II. There was a big, like, post-World War II, oh, we're going to hire all of these um, veterans to work for the Park Service, and we have to get rid of all of these ladies who are in the way. That was part of the culture in the mid, uh, mid-century as well. They, uh, they'd they often be given titles like Park Guide or Park Naturalist, um, and this is even when they did have the same duties as male park rangers. And it was also in the 1970s that women rangers were finally considered uh, equally qualified for all park positions and not just those that were considered safe or appropriate for women. And this was basically when around the same time and was a response to the fact that the federal government could no longer discriminate in in the hiring of various federal roles. So so they they held out. But. All of that was 50 years ago, um, and we still do, of course, tend to picture park rangers as white and male. And most of them are. As of 2018, the staff of the Park Service are 79% white and 62% male, um, which makes them significantly more white and male than the rest of the federal government. Something that we haven't talked about a lot here is, is of course race and park rangers and especially like african-american women in the park service as we note here it's still very uh white and still very male um there's certainly a whole other podcast we could do about the uh relationship between um african-americans as visitors to the park service or the story of african-americans as visitors to the park service uh and the fact that uh a lot of parks were segregated for for a long time and also just that there is a broader history of uh, african-americans feeling um left out of environmental education and stewardship in general but there wasn't basically there isn't a good through line about how that is being sort of addressed because it's still such terrible shape i mean i think the idea from the beginning about um the park ranger who said well back in the era of the buffalo soldiers there were more rangers black rangers or yosemite than there are right now is is very telling uh, so i just wanted to make sure that like we address that because it didn't we didn't go we mostly talked about white people in this episode i actually had the experience in graduate school of uh working for a summer as an intern at a National Historic Park, the Rosie the Riveter Park in Richmond, California, which is a pretty recent park and part of a recent trend in the last, I don't know, I'll say like 20 years or so of the the National Park system 
expanding from kind of conserving these natural wilderness oriented areas to places that are of historical and cultural significance, which is an interesting kind of tangent to get into. One of the really, the foundational people behind that park who is still working there at age 99 and is currently the oldest park ranger in the service. And she's someone who's gotten some media attention um, for being the oldest park ranger in the service and for being such a powerful speaker and um, spokesperson for the kind of interpretive work that she does is a woman named Betty Reed Soskin. And so I had the huge privilege of getting to know her a little bit when I worked there. She's somebody who uh, is a woman of color who was born um, in Louisiana and raised from an incredibly long-lived family, so raised in part as a child by her great-grandmother who had been in her teens or early 20s at emancipation. So somebody who is still living and still in the park service now who has a, you know, had a, had a, a lifetime relationship with her enslaved ancestor, which is a pretty like powerful thing to think about. Um, and then when her family relocated to California during the World War II period, was a young woman who worked in a Jim Crow Union Hall, which was a, a, an institution created to allow people of color to work in war industries is in part of a deal that was cut with white unions so that they were technically union members and allowed to work but were exempted from the negotiated benefits that white members of the union received and because of betty's role in that process and then later on throughout sort of her life as a, a civil rights leader and a community leader in the berkeley east bay area ended up working for a local congressman who was uh kind of put her on the task force as this national park was being designed. And she was really just instrumental in framing the mission of the park from being something that was about kind of initially kind of conceived of as intended about, you know, kind of the traditional white centric narrative of people pulling together in World War II to something that is much, much more profoundly, profoundly explores and is critical and inclusive of all of these stories of labor and civil rights history that were kind of encapsulated in that moment. And so her presence in the Park Service, I think, is an example of some really powerful new directions that that things can go when the right people are in the room. It'll be interesting to see. I think there. I think the Park Service is still trying to figure out, like, now that they've acknowledged there is a problem, what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we'll wrap up. But I wanted to say, yeah. um, Emily and Lexi, if you want to plug anything or tell people where they can find you and your work. Or if you don't want to do that, that's fine, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, I would like to plug the concept of Smokey the Bear. Um, <laughs> you can technically find me on Twitter. I'm not the most active um, poster at Lexi Rose Me. Uh, and uh, I would encourage people to check out uh, a lot of diverse voices that are speaking out in conservation and natural history and and this this idea that I think, as we just talked about, is gaining traction, that natural history and natural resource management are things that are themselves subjects in the history of science and that it needs some subjectivity and thoughtfulness in unpacking how those things intersect with current issues of um, equity and inclusion for all people. So uh, things that I've really enjoyed this year have been the Black Birders Week and Black Hikers Week movements and a lot of related Mm -hmm. movements of um, people of color in the outdoors. There's so many great um, nonprofits that uh, and, and individuals who are doing a lot of wonderful communication about that. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Adventure Storian. I don't tweet a lot these days, and mostly I'm talking to Becca. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But uh, you can also find my organization is the Nisqually River Foundation, and you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at Nisqually River. Thank you um, both so much for... Thanks yeah. for having us. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, and this was so delightful. <laughs> <laughs> Same. Um, may I may I plug a, a book in particular? Yes. Uh, so I've been reading Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, Indigenous mm. Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants uh, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I've, I've actually been listening to it um, through Libby. Uh, I can also plug Libby, the library audio app. And it's it's been really wonderful in talking about a lot of these themes and in thinking about humans as part of the ecosystem and how we can positive relationship with the outdoors and with, with the environment um, and not thinking about it as such a black and white, like either the environment is serving us or we are serving the environment. And those are the only two ways that we can think about it. Okay. Um, if you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the topics we discuss, tweet us at, at LadyXScience. Use the hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read articles and essays, pitch us an idea and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine. We depend on support from readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com donate. Until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at ladiesciencemag and on Twitter and Instagram at at ladyxscience. Well, the ranger's hat and shovel and a pair of dungarees. You will find him in the forest always sniffing at the breeze. People stop and pay attention when he tells them to beware Cause everybody knows that he's the fire preventing bear Smokey the bear, Smokey the bear Prowling and a-growling and a-sniffing the air He can find a fire before it starts to flame That's why they call him Smokey, that was how he got his name